niece of mine married a former college football player. He played junior college football for a college in Iowa, uh, could have played for the rest of the years, decided instead then uh, to continue on, pursue academic interests. But his glory days were in high school when he played for a high school team in Iowa that competed regularly for state football championships. The coach he played for was legendary. He won 292 games in 37 seasons and coached five players who would eventually play in the NFL. Tragically, though, in 2009, one of his former players, who was mentally ill, shot him in the school's weight room during a summer workout. My niece's husband described to me how he lost not just a football coach, but a mentor, someone who was important to him. You know, I've heard that theme in other places as well. Um, occasionally, I'm officiating at a wedding, and I'm meeting with the family to plan the service, and one or more of the children of the deceased man uh, or woman will describe their mother or dad as a mentor, as someone that they look to regularly for advice, called weekly perhaps, but look to in important times in their lives to find advice and counsel to help them to live their lives in the way that they should. If we're lucky, we've had several mentors in our lives, people who have served as wisdom figures that we've looked to for advice and counsel, and then for one reason or another, they're gone. This can create a sense of loss and anxiety, especially when it comes time to make an important decision and the person that we would normally look to is not there anymore. That's exactly the situation that Jesus' disciples found themselves in in the days leading up to his death on the cross. They didn't exactly know what was going to happen, but they did know something was up because, for one, Jesus told them. He told them he was about to leave them, and that left them anxious and troubled. In various ways, he tried to calm their fears. So two weeks ago, we talked about how he told them, I've gone to prepare a place for you, a place that I will take you to one day. And that place is heaven, and he said there was plenty of space, lots of rooms, he said, for all of them and for many more. But that reunion would be a few years away for each of them, some less, some more. And in the text we look at today, Jesus gives some additional advice about what they're to do in the meantime, between now and the time that they go to be with Jesus for eternity. It's advice about the expectations and also an important resource that they're going to be able to draw on in the time that they remain here on earth. We're in a series that we're calling John on Jesus. It's a, a looking at the second half of John's biography of Jesus in the New Testament. And we're looking specifically at a section where Jesus has a conversation with his disciples just before his arrest, before he will go to be tried, eventually convicted and crucified. And the part of the conversation that we're going to look at today has, among other things, a common theme. And that theme has to do with the Holy Spirit. And I know what some of you are thinking. The Holy Spirit makes you really nervous. Uh, you've heard weird things that Christians do or say blamed on the Holy Spirit. Things like uh, churches where people laugh hysterically or other places where people fall down on the ground and bark like dogs and blame it all on the Holy Spirit. And so, you, you know, if you're like me, that kind of creeps you out. So what are we supposed to think about the Holy Spirit? And it's actually harder to think about the Holy Spirit than you might initially think. Now, let me just give you an example. If I were to ask you, you know, what's God like, and even go further and ask you to draw a picture, I'd end up with a bunch of pictures of an old man with a long gray beard. And then if I said, okay, draw the son, Jesus. You'd draw a younger guy also with a beard, but this time maybe with a smile on his face. But then if I said, okay, now, and by the way, um, it, it's... We need to be careful about anthropomorphizing God and his son. That can have some risky repercussions. But at the same way, if I asked you to represent the Holy Spirit, what would you draw? 
It's, it's tough, isn't it, to think about what you draw? Even the biblical authors struggle and end up with vague terms like breath and wind and fire and, rain and water. And the most tangible image we have in the Bible is the Holy Spirit as a dove. Sometimes, by the way, people describe the Holy Spirit as an it because we're just struggling with how to describe them. That's because it makes more sense to think of God and his son Jesus as persons but the Christian understanding is that all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are persons, not some vague force. Sometimes people will tell me that they object to the idea that masculine pronouns are used to describe God and the Holy Spirit. And I understand that. In fact, it's, it's very uh, uh, understandable. We need to understand that just talking about God or the Holy Spirit using male pronouns is just because we have to pick one or the other. It's not because they are masculine or feminine in a human sense. The Holy Spirit, though, describing the Holy Spirit as an it doesn't quite get it because the Holy Spirit is a person. And we need to understand that. In the divine sense, he's a person. The most common metaphor in the Bible for the Holy Spirit is wind or breath. Both terms, though, are vague and amorphous. You can't see the wind or breath but you can see the effect. So if there's a storm and the wind blows really hard and uproots a tree, you can see the uprooted tree, but you can't see the wind. In other words, you can recognize the Holy Spirit by its effects or his effects in our world. That's why I like so much a graphic representation of the Holy Spirit that hangs in our lobby just in the alcove that's out just the doors to my right. And it was created by one of our artists, Sally Stewart, another time that we had a sermon about the Holy Spirit. She created this for that series or for that particular week. And what she did here is she used the image of a dove, but she drew it in negative space. So she just left the outline. The outline is where the drawing is. In the other words, what we're seeing here is the effects of the Holy Spirit, even though we can't see the Holy Spirit itself or himself. And I think it's a brilliant way of capturing the idea. The texts that um, are assigned to us today aren't exclusively about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is a thread woven throughout this part of John's biography of Jesus. So I'm going to look today, or we're going to look today, at two sections from two different chapters, chapters 14 and 16, in the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, and we're going to see how the Holy Spirit plays an important role in this particular section. I'm not going to read through it straight. We're going to read a few selected verses and make some comments along the way and particularly focus on the idea of the Holy Spirit. So if you'd like to follow along, if you uh, want to grab one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1642 is where we're going to start, chapter 14, verse 15, and we'll move through this as we go. Although the words for everything I'll read will be on the screen. Now, Jesus starts by talking to his disciples about obedience, and he begins this way in chapter 14, verse 15, when he says, if you love me, keep my commands. Or you could say, if you really loved me, you'd show me by doing what I told you to do. Now, in our culture, our day, we're not much into obedience. Uh, following the rules has a bad rap. Um, it takes all the fun out of life, doesn't it, if we have to follow all the rules? But that's not the way that Jesus sees it. Just a few verses later, he says in verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then he adds, the one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. In other words, we show Jesus our love and loyalty through obedience. This in terms brings us, in turn brings us into an intimate relationship with God. And even more, when we follow God, he will show us what God is like. 
So the way that Jesus wants his disciples to think about obedience is not a sort of grit your teeth, kind of just do it obligation. Um, instead, what he wants us to understand is that we don't obey God in order to earn his favor or to pay off a debt. Instead, he says that obedience is the way we express gratitude to God for what he's done for us. And those who obey God, he says, are loved by his Father, and he'll show us more of what he's like. That's important because we often get this backwards. Religion and general, religious traditions in general, say that if we obey God, then he loves us. But what Christian faith teaches us is that Jesus loves us freely, offers us grace, and our response to love is obedience, not the other way around. Now, even if we get this faith-obedience idea right, that obedience is a response to God's love, it's still difficult to do the things that we know we ought to do. Um, others have experienced this, including St. Paul, who once said, I don't understand why I act the way I do. I don't do what I know is right. And then he adds, Jesus adds this comment in his conversation about the Holy Spirit. In verses 16 and 17 in chapter 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The word advocate here in the text is difficult to translate because it doesn't have a direct equivalent in English. Um, often it's translated as comforter, counselor, confidant. There are a lot of different ways that this word can be translated. Um, but what it means literally is one who comes alongside, para is like the word for parallel, comes alongside in order to offer help. So a paramedic is someone who comes alongside to offer medical assistance. And in this context, what he's saying is the paraclete is someone who comes alongside us spiritually to help us in difficulty. The Bible tells us that when we become followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us, takes up residence within us, and works in our lives. And one of his jobs is to help us obey, to give us the power to be transformed so that we can be more obedient to God. I once worked with somebody the first year I was at General Mills. Our cubes were adjacent to each other. And one of his favorite words was knucklehead. I don't know why, but that's what he said all the time. Most of the time he used it to describe people he was working with that he thought did things that were stupid. And, um, but on occasion, they were rare occasions, but on occasion he'd use it to describe himself especially after he made some boneheaded mistake or another. One time in frustration, he said over the cube walls to no one in particular, he said, why is it I don't realize that I'm a knucklehead before I do something stupid instead of after? And, you know, we've all experienced that, haven't we? When, you know, it's only in retrospect that we see how boneheaded the thing was that we had done. It's hard sometimes even impossible to do what we know we ought to do on our own. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside us. The Holy Spirit is the one who warns us and says, hey, look, you're about to do something stupid. Knock it off. Or sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to get in our faces and say, stop it, you're killing yourself. Sometimes literally. I worked at a summer camp when I was in college, a Christian camp, and uh, I supervised a group of counselors. I think I had four or five counselors, and they had then eight to ten students in their cabins. And uh, one of the counselors had a student who on Tuesday, the light bulbs just went off, and this, this little four year, fourth grader decided to become a follower of Jesus. Later in the week, I ran into him, and I, I said to him, I said, how's it going? He said, it's going pretty well. He said, except I've got this problem that keeps happening. 
And that is that every time I start to do something, I freeze. Uh, that's kind of curious. And so I asked him what he meant. And he said, well, you know, it used to be. I just did or said whatever I wanted. But now every time I start to do something, I think, oh, wait a second. Should I do that or not? That's the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, guiding, keeping us from error and guiding us into truth. And that's one of the other specific ways that the Holy Spirit supports or comes alongside of us. And that is showing us what's true. Now, you may have had times, and it could be in a lot of different settings, when suddenly something that was unclear became clear. It can happen in school, but it can also happen spiritually as well. When there's those spiritual aha moments, when we finally get something that exciting and new that we once didn't understand, but now we understand it in clarity. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives helping us understand what we once didn't know. Here are a couple of quotes from Jesus' conversation with his disciples. First from chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. He says, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Then skipping ahead to chapter 16, a couple of verses there, first verse 13, where Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And skipping then a couple of verses to verse 15, he says, the Holy Spirit or the spirit will receive from me what he has made known to you, what he will make known to you. So what the Holy Spirit does is teach us truth, remind us of truth, interpret truth, in short, guide us into all truth. Now, whether it's supporting us as we seek to obey Jesus or guiding us into truth, Jesus comes back and reassures his disciples in verses 18 to 20 in chapter 14. He says, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me any longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Then another additional reminder of obedience in verses 23 and 24. And then Jesus tells them that though he's leaving them, he doesn't want them to be anxious or afraid. And in what are some of the most comforting verses in the Bible, or verse in the Bible, chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So in this section here, he's telling them you're not going to be spiritually orphaned. I'm coming back, and in the meantime, I want you to be at peace. And one of the ways is the peace-giving power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. And it's not, the kind of, it's not the kind of peace the world often thinks of. We think of avoiding trouble or refusing to face difficulties, and he's saying no. It's the kind of peace that comes from leaning into the challenges that we face, of trusting that God will be there with us. It's a peace that's independent of our outward circumstances, there's no sorrow, no danger, no suffering that can take this kind of peace that comes from God away. He even continues by telling them that they are going to be better off after he leaves. This is kind of counterintuitive, but listen to what he says. First in verse 28 of chapter 14. He says, you heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to your father for the father is greater than I. And skipping to chapter 16, sorry for the back and forth, but... Uh, Verse 7 of chapter 16, he says, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, what Jesus is making is a really practical point here. When Jesus came to earth, he accepted the limitations of being a human being. 
So one of the limitations of being human is we can only be in one place at any one time. And so Jesus was available to his disciples, but he wouldn't be available forever. Or if they were scattered, he wouldn't be there with each one of them. And what he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit doesn't have that limitation. He can be with each one of us 24-7, 365. In chapter 16, just after Jesus has informed them that if he leaves them, they'll have this indwelling power of the Spirit at all times, he gives a summary of what the Holy Spirit will do. This is in chapter 16, verses 8 to 11. And this is a little complicated, so I want to read it and then explain what he's, what he's talking about. First he says, when he, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So he raises three topics, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let me give just a quick summary of each of these. The sin issue here he's talking about is that the Spirit will demonstrate, will convict, if you will, that everyone is guilty of sin. Otherwise, they would put their faith in Christ. In other words, he's saying, you would put your faith in me if you understood your own sinfulness, your own need for a Savior. And we live in a world that minimizes the idea of sin. We talk about mistakes and errors in judgment. We might even talk about addictions or being victims. And sometimes one or more of these factors do influence the issues and, and problems that we have in our lives. But ultimately, we're responsible and accountable for our actions. The Bible talks about sin in two different ways. One is sins, as that is individual acts of rebellion against God. And then also sin, which is a condition. It's just the way that we are. We have a tendency when someone says to go left, we want to go right. We're rebellious in our nature. If we get in trouble, we try to minimize it or try to argue our case. But ultimately, what he's saying here is the Holy Spirit convicts us in a way that we know we need to repent of our sin and accept Jesus as Lord as the only way to God. So that's the idea of sin. Now, righteousness here he's talking about is the way the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus' righteousness to us. That Jesus is the righteous one. Now, let me just give you a way that I often explain this. Um, I think that all of us have some idea of the way we ought to be living. We have some kind of standard in our minds of the way we ought to be living life, that we ought to be kind and loving and hardworking and frugal and faithful and selfish, or selfless, excuse me, <laughs> and we ought to recycle all those things and in, in roll up into one. But if we're honest, we know that we're not all that we ought to be. Admitting this is the first step, and that's the sin, that Jesus, sin part that Jesus mentions. But this idea of righteousness that, Jesus, that he mentions here about Jesus is acknowledging that Jesus is the one who lives this out perfectly, and we fall short of that. Jesus is the one who has lived out that perfect moral ideal. In fact, he's more than lived it out. We probably have a standard that's a little short of one that Jesus actually lived out. He has lived the life that we have tried but have failed. And that's what it is to truly understand the righteousness of God. That in Jesus Christ, we have one who has lived this out perfectly. Then the third idea that Jesus mentions is judgment. And the judgment he's talking here is not about us. That's the sin deal that we've already come to terms with. But what he's saying here is that the judgment here is of Satan. That Satan stands condemned because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, all of what I've just described can sound a bit like a downer. So let me turn this and 
put a more positive spin on it. It's still a biblical spin on it, but a more positive way of thinking about this. And up front, I want to tell you, I know that not all of you have made decisions to follow Jesus Christ. That's okay. We're glad you're here. We respect where you are. We'd love to have conversation and answer questions and be in dialogue about this because we know it's a process. So I know that some of you haven't and maybe someday will, and others of you have made a decision to be followers of Jesus. So here's what I have observed about the way the Holy Spirit nudges us toward faith in Jesus Christ. We recently restarted doing something we used to do, faith stories. We used to have them more regularly in our services, and we got away from it. It's, it's a lot of work, but it's really good work. And so we've been having folks who've been coming and sharing a little short personal story about how they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And we have one of those a bit later in our service today. If you've been listening to those, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've noticed one thing, and that is that they're all different. Um, Some of them are young and old. Some of them came to faith when they were kids. Some as adults. Some it was an instantaneous sort of uh, Damascus Road experience. And others it was a long process. And it can be very different in all that sort of way. My own story of coming to faith is I was a sixth grader. That's fairly young. But mine was a long process, six months or longer, where I kind of wrestled with this and tried to get it and understand it. And then by the end of that process, it was like, oh, I think I understand what this is all about. But in all these stories, whether young and old, whether adults or kids, whether a process or an instant, one of the common threads, common themes that you may have heard is that something was once fuzzy and unclear, and then it came into focus. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that there is this big picture story about God, that God has reached out to us in love, that Jesus died on the cross for all of humanity, that each of us are sinners and we're lost unless someone comes to rescue us. And that's why Jesus came. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that he died and was raised again from the dead so that we can have new life in him. What's important for each of us is that the big picture story becomes our story, that each of us personally choose to follow Jesus. And that's the critical role of the Holy Spirit in our journey to faith in God. And you might ask, how does that happen? Well, it's a lot of different ways, but sometimes I've seen it happen where people are still wrestling, seeking, kind of asking a lot of questions And then something that was confusing suddenly becomes clear. One time, someone came up to me after a service and said, listen, you know, I'm not a Christian, but boy, I'd sure like to be. And over time, it was interesting to watch how he kind of put all things together and eventually made a commitment to Christ. Every year, I meet people who are seeking, people who have questions, and we end up in a conversation about those questions. And then sometimes a few weeks or months or even years later, they tell me they've decided to be followers of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us see our need for God, convicts us of sin, shines light on the truth, enables us to believe. And that's not something we can do without the Spirit's help. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, St. Paul writes this. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is a magnet that draws us toward Jesus Christ. We're still free to choose. He doesn't force us against our will. He won't drag us to Christ kicking and screaming, but he does gently and quietly persuade and coax us. Without the Spirit's help, none of us would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we started today talking about mentors, important people in our lives who give us advice and counsel and challenge and sometimes even, or encourage us and sometimes even challenge us. 
But what Jesus told his disciples in this important conversation is that while he was leaving them, he would not leave them alone. Instead, he would leave behind a new mentor, the Holy Spirit. So in the context of this encouragement to them during this anxious time, he told them to obey God, but that they would be given this mentor to help them along the way, to empower and to enlighten them to do what God requires. He told them that at the same time, this spiritual mentor would come alongside to help them understand what was true and what was false. And when life grew difficult, he told them that this same mentor would be there to comfort and encourage them along the way to keep going. And finally, he told them that this mentor would be the one who would help them understand and respond to the love of God in their lives, the need for saving faith in Jesus. The essence of Christian faith is not what we do. It is what God has done through us, for us through Christ. This is something that each one of us needs to come to grips with. And to do so, we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples and the important information he gave us. He gave them, and by extension, us, that this Holy Spirit, this gift would come after he ascended into heaven. Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit indwells us when we make a decision to be followers of Jesus. And I pray that if there are any here today who've not yet made that decision, that they would and experience the peace that comes from knowing God as their, through Jesus as their Savior. But Father, we also know that uh, we want out of obedience or out of love to obey you, out of gratitude for what you've done for us. And so we pray that you would empower and enlighten us to do what God requires. We thank you that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand what's true and what's false, that the Holy Spirit comforts and encourages us to keep going when we face difficulties and challenges. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, this gift that gives us the power that we need to live out the life that you have given us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.